I'm Emily Candela. I'm a design historian and an artist, and this show is inspired by what really interests me, which is the ways that science meets art and design. On this series, we bring you stories from the long relationship between the arts and one particular science, X-ray crystallography, which is 100 years old this year. And it's a science that explores the invisible, the tiny structures of atoms in molecules and crystals. But this series isn't only about crystallography's microscopic world of atoms. It's also about how this rather obscure science has been quietly leaving its mark on design and art for decades. Welcome to Atomic Radio, a project of the Science Museum Art Program. This week's episode, A Women's Science. Or should I phrase that title as a question? A women's science? X-ray crystallography has long had this reputation for being a field that's unique for its significant numbers of female practitioners. Especially in its early years, back in the mid-20th century, when it would have been rare to find women working in any field of science. This week, I'm wondering, what did this mean for its pioneering female scientists? Was crystallography seen disparagingly as the women's work of the sciences? And how does the way that we remember X-ray crystallography's past affect the future of women in the science? Today on the show, I'll be talking with someone who's thought a lot about this, the science writer Georgina Ferry. And later in the show, we zoom in on a crystallographer who was close to the heart of Atomic Radio because of the way that she combined science and design. So that's what's coming up in this episode. I was immediately captured for life by chemistry and by crystals. I chose one of the attics in our new home in Geldston and set up a laboratory for myself. It was just a small room with a sloping roof and a small window, but I bought proper glassware with my pocket money from the local chemists and later small bottles of chemicals. He didn't seem to have rules about what he would allow 10-year-old children to buy. The words you just heard were written by Dorothy Hodgkin who grew up from the 10-year-old entranced by crystals to become an X-ray crystallographer who revealed the atomic structures of important substances, like insulin and penicillin. You might have seen the recent Google Doodle in honor of her 104th birthday that replaced the O's in Google with her molecular model of penicillin. Dorothy Hodgkin's words in that recording were performed by the actress Miranda Cook. They're from a play called Hidden Glory by my guest who you'll hear later, Georgina Ferry. It's a play written using words from Dorothy Hodgkin's own letters and books she'd read. Let us realize that in the last 25 years or so, 
We have been given, so to speak, new eyes. The discovery of x-rays has provided means by which we can look far down into the structure of solid bodies and observe in detail the design of their composition. We have advanced a whole stage towards the position from which we can see why a material composed of such and such atoms has such and such characteristics. The discovery of x-rays has increased the keenness of our vision a thousand times and we can now see the individual atoms and molecules. Dorothy Hodgkin used the power of x-rays to reveal the complicated structures of atoms in biological materials, like insulin, which she studied for 30 years. It's a huge molecule with hundreds of atoms to pinpoint. And her research was groundbreaking. In 1964, Dorothy Hodgkin won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, and she still remains the only British woman to have won a science Nobel. And when she won the prize in 1964, the press just could not seem to wrap their minds around a woman winning a Nobel Prize. The Daily Mail announced Oxford housewife wins Nobel, as though she wasn't a professional scientist and instead had discovered the structure of substances like penicillin by accident. The newspaper The Observer also reported on Hodgkin as a housewife, writing that she had received a Nobel Prize for, as they put it, a thoroughly unhousewifely skill, the structures of crystals of great chemical interest. Elizabeth in my arms. She weighed nine pounds, four ounces this morning. She's gained an average of seven and a half ounces per week in the first eight weeks of her life. Going along South Parks Road one morning in May 1940, I met Ernst Chain in a state of great excitement. He'd just been carrying out the experiment, which is now famous. They had four mice, which they injected with streptococcus alone, and four, which they injected with streptococcus and penicillin. The first group all died, and the second group lived. Howard Florey, who led the project, said, you don't need statistics to interpret that result. Dorothy Hodgkin was known for being able to move quite seamlessly between scientific subjects and her family life. And as you might have gathered from the newspaper headlines proclaiming that a housewife had won the Nobel Prize, it was pretty unusual for a woman to work as a scientist at the time. And it was even more unusual for a married woman with children to do so. When Dorothy Hodgkin had her first child in 1938, there wasn't even a precedent for maternity leave at Oxford University where she worked. So she was actually the first woman there to have paid maternity leave. I decided to go to my mother's home for the birth, stopping in London on the way to go to a symposium at the Royal Society. <laughs> Only when I arrived, I found I was listed as one of the speakers, along with Banal and others. I was a bit worried. I was eight months pregnant. I'd not thought of a speech or brought along any slides. The reason why I'm bothering to mention details of Dorothy Hodgkin's personal life is because I think it's part of the social history of science. Little details, like whether or not a woman could get married or give birth and still be allowed to come back to work, to return to her research, 
These details determine who is permitted to be a part of the making of science, and consequently how the course of that science proceeds, which discoveries are made, and how. I remember a somewhat fantastic dream in which I imagined myself walking about amongst trees and picking the atoms off the trees like great birds. This was through thinking of the possibility of working on some of the more complicated molecules of which the structure was still unknown by X-rays. Most of what I know about Dorothy Hodgkin, I learned from Georgina Ferry's book, Dorothy Hodgkin, A Life. And I was very excited to get to speak with Georgina Ferry for this episode. She's a science journalist who's written for The New Scientist, The Guardian, and Nature, and has published several books. In a recent special issue of Nature, published for the 100th anniversary of X-ray crystallography, Georgina took the bold step of reframing the issue of women in crystallography in terms of how their role in the field is remembered and how we might think about it today going ahead into the future. Hi, Georgina. Hi. So of all the scientific fields, X-ray crystallography is the one that's probably most associated with having a large number of female um, scientists. What's wrong with, with how women in crystallography have been, has been memorialized? I think one of the problems is that um, two crystallographers in particular, uh, and maybe three, you could possibly add a third, um, have become so well known uh, that they're almost regarded as the only women in the field. Uh, and those are Rosalind Franklin, who's known because of the role she played in the discovery of the double helix of DNA uh, and how she was uh, very much uh, shortchanged, essentially, um, by the fact that her X-ray data were used by James Watson and Francis Crick uh, to discover the structure, um, and they didn't credit her. Even in their Nobel acceptance speech, they didn't credit her. So she's been, um, uh, and this is something she would not have liked herself, as her sister has said, she's been treated as a kind of martyr, which is not really the way that a good scientist wants to be remembered. Um, the other is Dorothy Hodgkin, uh, and she's remembered because she's the only British woman who's ever won a science Nobel. And that's, I mean, that's less problematic. That is obviously something we should celebrate. Um, but again, I mean, particularly at the time, and I think still since, the fact that she's seen as so exceptional um, has almost put out the message that uh, this is something that uh, the average sixth form girl or, or graduate student uh, perhaps ought not to think of, of emulating. Um, so, so I think that the very uh, prominence of those women who were early in the field um, has, has possibly in some senses made it more difficult for those who came after. Because these women are so pri high profile, um, on the one hand, they're seen, seen as exceptional and, and unique. But on the other hand, uh, there's a, a sense that there are lots of women in crystallography. And uh, some people have even quoted uh, others as saying the field is swamped with women. Um, when actually the, the truth is that although the numbers do seem to be somewhat higher than they are in other areas of physical science, um, a, a comparison that was done in the early 80s said about 14% women in crystallography as opposed to 2% in physics, um, the, the, the number has been overestimated. Um, and so I suppose the, the problem with that is that um, people will say, um, 
there's no problem about women getting on in science. And, and, and actually, if we look around us today, uh, there is still a problem with women get, getting on in science in terms of reaching um, the highest positions uh, of authority. What would it be like for um, a woman going into, say, X-ray crystallography like Dorothy Hodgkin did in the 1930s and 40s? What sort of experiences would they have and what sort of challenges would they or did she face? Well, I think one should say straight away um, that it was unusual for women to continue in any professional career in that era if they had even a husband, never mind kids. Um, Though Dorothy Hodgkin wasn't the first. Kathleen Lonsdale, who was 10 years older than her and had come into the field immediately as as soon as she graduated from her her first degree in physics, also had three kids. So there was a model there that that showed that it was possible to do this. Um, But I've looked at data for women fellows of the Royal Society. Election to the Royal Society is Britain's highest scientific honour. The number of women who've been elected uh, is extremely small. Uh, The first was not elected until 1945, and that was an X-ray crystallographer, Kathleen Lonsdale, and Dorothy Hodgkin herself was elected in 1947. Um, But I looked at the the first, uh, I think it was something like the first 30 years of women... Uh, fellows of the Royal Society and compared it with the last 30 years and found that um, in the earlier cohort, uh, the number who had no children at all was extremely high, much higher than in the general population. And in the later group, although they were more likely to be married and have families, they were still below the the average for the population at the time. Um, So it does seem that some women who achieve very high uh, uh, success in in science and, and recognition are at some point making a choice that science is what they will do and not families, and and fewer of them make a go of it if they have both families and a scientific career. Why do you think so many women were attracted to X-ray crystallography as a field um, during the decades of the field's infancy um, in the middle of last century and still today? I think it all started with the founders of the field, who were William Henry Bragg, a physicist, and his son, William Lawrence Bragg, who was also a physicist. Um, but they, they discovered the technique of X-ray crystallography um, and uh, published their results in about 1913. They won the Nobel Prize in 1915. Um, but they, they had spent, um, well, the younger one had spent all his childhood in Australia. His father had spent a lot of his career in Australia. And they came back to the UK with a very egalitarian outlook. And so they they hired women, they hired, uh, you know, unexpected people, they all they were really interested in was commitment to, to the task. Um, and then they were very collegial in the way they ran their labs. Um, it wasn't a matter of the head of the lab taking all the credit as often happened, particularly in German universities. Um, and many of the people they trained, both male and female, continued that ethos into the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And we can still see the impact of that today. The ripples have just continued to spread uh, from people who grew up in that in that kind of collegial, uh, on the one hand, collegial atmosphere, but also an atmosphere in which you were expected to get on and achieve something for yourself, make discoveries for yourself. So I also wanted to ask... X-ray crystallography has had this reputation as being a science associated in some ways with female labor. Has there ever been a kind of pejorative root to these associations, um, to associations with craft even? There were certainly chemists 
who essentially saw X-ray crystallography as a kind of service industry. Uh, and in Dorothy Hodgkin's career, uh, the main instance of that uh, was when the um, professor of organic chemistry at Cambridge, Alexander Todd, um, he, someone in his group had grown crystals of um, a, a, a derivative of vitamin B12, which is something that Dorothy Hodgkin was working on. Uh, and he'd given that crystal to her. Uh, and she and her colleagues, with tremendous insight, uh, had been able to solve the structure of vitamin B12. Um, and he announced the discovery, uh, was interviewed by the New York Times, uh, and in this article, the work of the people at Oxford came in the 17th, literally the 17th paragraph. Um, and she she also got wind that he was going to announce the result uh, at a, a meeting of the Chemical Society, the Royal Society of Chemistry, um, in Exeter, which is quite a long way from Oxford, and she just rushed down there to be there so that she could stand up and say, we did this. Um, and, and I think, you know, certainly her colleagues have said that they felt that Todd just saw them as, as I say, a kind of bunch of technicians and the, the glory would be his, but uh, he would never have got that structure without their work. As my guest Georgina Ferry said, when it comes to the famous female stars of X-ray crystallography... There are a few names that come up more often than others. Rosalind Franklin, whose research was key to the discovery of the DNA double helix. And Dorothy Hodgkin. Their stories are fascinating. But I thought I'd take the opportunity in this episode to share the story of a crystallographer who's received less attention. And I left the studio for this one because I thought that there would be nowhere more appropriate to tell this story than by a particular spot by the river on the south bank of the Thames. I've always been interested in what people in the past thought the future, maybe the future we're living in right now, would be like. You know, jetpacks, flying cars, stuff like that. Personally, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I assumed that by now we'd all be living in dome-like houses made out of melted down plastic bags. I think I got that impression somehow from a video we watched in school about recycling. Anyway, some pasts dream up better futures than other pasts, in my opinion. And if I had to choose one, maybe not to live in, but at least to visit out of sheer curiosity, it would be the future that was dreamed up in the 1950s. A version of that future was imagined back in 1951, right here, where I'm speaking to you from on the south bank of the Thames in London. It doesn't look especially futuristic now. There's no, no jetpacks, no recycled plastic bag dome houses. Just a lot of tourists, Londoners on their day off, walking along the riverbank, workers taking a lunchtime jog, seagulls, kids splashing in puddles, and a commuter boat. Yes, London has commuter boats. It's really cool. 
and I'm in front of a concert hall, the Royal Festival Hall, one of the only things remaining from the 1951 Festival of Britain. Eight and a half million people visited this place. They came here all through the summer of 1951. Here on the riverbank was the main site of the festival. It was a national event, and it transformed part of the city of London into a colorful, futuristic, fairground hybrid landscape. And all of them in a special mood, slightly exaggerated, slightly excited. A mood that had been made by the building, the color, and the music. The idea was to raise everyone's spirits after World War II. At this point, six years after the end of the war, parts of London were still bomb sites, and a lot of basic goods were still being rationed. So if something was going to change the mood in Britain, it was going to have to be big and ambitious. And the Festival of Britain was both. Here on the South Bank stood the Skylon, a gigantic metal structure that looked like a grasshopper reaching high up into the sky. And nearby it was my personal favorite, the Dome of Discovery. It was a huge, round, flying saucer-shaped building standing on metal legs. This was the building that attracted most attention. It was the largest dome that had ever been built. It was rather like a ship. It was a live thing that moved and strained with the changes of weather and temperature. All of this was kind of a fantasy world, a dream that materialized briefly more than 60 years ago. And now it's just a memory. These buildings only stood for a little while before being knocked down by the conservative government that came to power in 1951. But when it stood on the bank decades ago, the Dome of Discovery, that metallic UFO-like building, contained a restaurant. And inside that restaurant, the menus, the curtains, the carpets, and even the waitress's lace collars displayed designs based on the crystal structures of atoms in matter. This was the work of the Festival Pattern Group, a collaboration between scientists and designers for the Festival of Britain. Their ambitious project produced 80 patterns, all of them derived from crystal structure diagrams made by British X-ray crystallographers. At this time, in the middle of last century, X-ray crystallographers were exploring the material world at its smallest scale yet. The Festival Pattern Group's designs ranged from lace based on the crystalline structure of insulin and window glass with a pattern adapted from the structure of the mineral apophyllite to ties designed after the diagrams of atoms making up hemoglobin, which is found in red blood cells, and wallpaper patterns based on boric acid. Collaborations like this don't seem to usually work this way around. But the idea for this project came from a scientist, the Irish X-ray crystallographer Helen McGaugh. And one thing that she's remembered for is her scientific research on ice. There's even an island named after her because of it, McGaugh Island in Antarctica. And she was always aware of the parallels between patterns in crystals and pattern in design. And so she thought, instead of, say, the repetition of roses across your wall, 
why not have the atomic structure of horse blood or nylon up there? They are, after all, beautiful diagrams. And she wasn't alone in thinking this at the time. The people organizing the Festival of Britain were all for it. Their whole idea was to breathe some life into the struggling post-war economy and to bring together science and the arts. So the festival pattern group got to work with Helen McGaw collecting diagrams from her colleagues and redrawing many of them herself just to make them a little bit more like patterns, patterns you might want to see in your home. Then she'd hand them off to the designers of carpets, cutlery, china, and all kinds of things. And in the end, most of the final designs didn't stray very far off from Helen McGaw's original sketches. By uniting crystal patterns of matter, like insulin and mica, with everyday materials, like carpets, fabric, and window glass, the Festival Pattern Group revealed crystallography to be an intense form of exploration, a mapping of the very material world in a way that had never been done before. And they were confident that their designs, adapted from science, could rival the most modern patterns produced at the time. And they certainly were pushing design more than most. So much so, in fact, that maybe as far as commercial viability goes, they were perhaps too radical. In the end, the Festival Pattern Group's creations didn't make much of a splash at the Festival of Britain. Never mind usher in a future utopia. The collaboration didn't lead to a great future union of science and the arts. And it probably didn't even give that much of a jump to the economy, since most of these designs never made it into mass production. I guess, in 1951, the public just wasn't ready for the hemoglobin tie or boric acid wallpaper. That's the show this week. Thank you to my guest, the science writer Georgina Ferry. Look out for her book, Dorothy Hodgkin, A Life, which will soon be reissued as an e-book and a print-on-demand title by Bloomsbury Reader. Today, you also heard clips from her play, Hidden Glory, Dorothy Hodgkin in her own words, performed by Miranda Cook and directed by Abby Wright. In this episode, you heard audio from the 1951 Festival of Britain from the London Sound Survey and clips from the 1952 documentary Brief City, the story of London's festival buildings. In our next episode, we'll be broadcasting to you from inside a molecule of myoglobin, which is a protein from the muscle of a whale featuring a radio play by the writer Daniel Marone. So be here same time next week. And you might want to bring your headphones for this one. 
Atomic Radio is part of the Resonance FM residency at the Science Museum, where we're coming to you through the gigantic horn made by the sound artist Alex Kolkowski. Atomic Radio is supported by the Science Museum Art Program and is a part of the International Year of Crystallography. Find out about everything else happening for the International Year at iycr.org. This series is part of my PhD research across the Royal College of Art and the Science Museum. Funded by an Arts and Humanities Research Council Collaborative Doctoral Award. Thanks, as always, to my fabulous PhD supervisors, Sarah Teasley and Peter Morris. And special thanks to Hannah Redler. Atomic Radio is made by me, Emily Candela. It's co-produced by Chris Dixon. Sound design and composition by Emmett Glynn and Sam Conran. Find us on Twitter at Radio underscore Atomic. And visit us at AtomicRadio.org with your comments and feedback. And we'll speak to you again next week. A mixture of rock shops, of roundabouts, of donkeys, of pointless models that merely pleased. Of bright temporary awnings and bits of rope and netting. it somehow captured that inexplicable lift of the heart, that hurrying into sandals and sports shirts, that placid sitting on the sand.